0: Welcome to the MercyCast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I am your host, Raleigh Sadler, and over the past 10 years, I've started a nonprofit that helps people better care for their most vulnerable neighbors. Along the way, I've met a lot of friends who are on a similar journey, each of us learning new things about ourselves and each other with the more adversity that we face. Life happens. Things change on a dime. We lose a job, a relationship, or a close friend, and it's easy to feel like we're losing ourselves. How do we go from fear of the inevitable to embracing shifts in our lives? Michael was 20 years old, raised in South Florida, when he moved to New York City to pursue a career in acting. Within three months, he was given the chance of a lifetime, a lead role in daytime TV's One Life to Live. His life basically changed overnight. Now, as he walked the streets of New York City, people noticed. They wanted pictures with him. They wanted to know him because they saw him on a daily basis. However, a year later, he was fired. His life changed. Today, I am talking with Michael Tips. Michael is a serial entrepreneur, restaurateur, filmmaker, and the co-founder of Invictus Hospitality. Michael, just reading your bio, I've seen that you've had multiple shifts in your life. And many of us, when we go through shifts like this, it's easy to kind of lose our identity because what we do is linked to who we believe we are. How did this massive shift in your life lead you to become a successful entrepreneur and restaurateur?
1: Well, first off, I just want to say thanks for having me on your your podcast.
0: Thanks for making it happen. Thanks for making the effort. and, uh, And if you can hear anything in the background, we're actually at your restaurant, Mama Fufu in Daytona Beach, Florida.
1: Yeah. So if you hear loud noises and people screaming, there's a reason. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because we're being <laughs> productive. I think the shift that happened when I was fired from the soap opera was at the time a complete travesty in my life and my life was over and all these things. But I, I didn't realize it was definitely the most monumental time of my life. And it's great to talk about it. During that time, I was a 20 year old. Here's the thing. You do a normal job, you get excited about making money. get on television when you're 20 years old and you're still insecure and you're barely a notch above being a teenager, all of a sudden you feel like you're important because people recognize you. And until you've experienced it, you don't realize how it can inflate your ego. So when that's taken
0: away- Well, it's addictive, right? Like when people are like,
1: oh, there he is, there he is. Well, look at our modern day culture because back then there was no Instagram, there was no social media and there were no reality shows. So soap opera, you were instantly famous. You're in people's lives, and you're rooms. feeling
0: great about yourself in this moment. You're best, like best thing ever. You're a kid, but you're like I, I matter. I'm important,
1: right? Which is the curse of television because doctors are important, not actors. And good, great actors will openly admit this. Not that their work's not important, but that's not. They're not. They're pretending to do something in life. Doctors do it for real. Yeah. Right. So it's always a funny perspective on on the arts. That's not taking away from what the arts do.
0: Right. So, no, entertainment matters. It is important. It helps us escape some everyday realities, but it's not as tangible as some of these other things that you've sure. listed,
1: right? Sure, I always talk about this and talk about relevance, right? Right. When your grandmother, God forbid, has something happen and has to rush to the ER, you're not going, oh man, I, I wonder if Denzel's going to win the Academy Award tonight. Like, yeah, you're not, right, right, right. right yeah. So my, my bigger point is, is that during that time in my life, when that was taken away, and when I say taken away, I don't mean that in a victim-like sense. I got myself fired. And that's part of the reason I really want to talk to you about it. Cause if like nobody talks about that stuff, you
0: got yourself fired. Absolutely. All right. Give me some background here.
1: Yeah. So, you know, what ends up happening is you, I think I had a lot of raw talent as an actor, but talent doesn't mean anything. Hard work does. And the show I'll get into later. I mean, it really helped me discover the fact that I didn't have a great work ethic. And I thought I did, but I did not. I was relying on resting on my laurels and I had great talent. And I had ability to talk as you can see. But the truth is, is that when I got on the show, I worked my butt off. And I worked really hard because I wasn't good. I was talented, but I wasn't good. And I worked really hard. And once I got on the show and I went from making a few hundred dollars a week being broke to making five, $10,000 a week, I was rich in my mind. And that's a lot of money. Yeah. But I mean, but in the acting world, it's it's still like drive-through money, right? So I was like, oh man, this is incredible. I stopped working hard. I started getting an ego. I got used to people asking me for my autograph, which is crazy. Now you'd laugh and go, you weren't a soap opera. You weren't like an A-list actor. But at the time that was a big deal. So it definitely got to my head and I started having meetings with my executive producer. And now in the TV world, that's just the boss. Right. And I was like, well, I'm still really happy with this writing. This isn't who you guys wrote the character to be when you hired me. Like I'm complaining and I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I'm not even doing good acting work at this point, but I'm complaining about the writers they're hiring. Right now I'm 20, 20 years old and I have no idea what I'm doing. And I remember, name was Gary. I'll leave his last name out of it. Being very gracious, very nice executive producer, not going, who do you think you are? And just going, okay, well, we'll do our best to address it. Two weeks later, I'm gone. And it shocked my world. I don't think about it. Everybody gets fired from that one great job when they're 20, young 20s, whatever. But it's never public. It's never on the cover of a magazine. And you know, I had to read stuff about myself, like Michael Tips can't act his way out of a paper bag. Mm. So when you're 20 and you're like, wow, everything flipped. So all of a sudden the people, I wasn't a jerk to people, don't get me wrong. But there were times as I was a typical 20-year-old arrogant kid. And some of the people who I left, when I left the restaurant business, as I booked the show, I was very quick to leave it. And I said goodbyes to the people that were closest, but probably not the goodbyes I should have said to everybody. And that bit me in the butt because later when I needed to get that $10 an hour host job, they were all booked up and they didn't need anyone. But I used to be that guy on television. That was a lot of humble pie. So to to go from going, hey, I'm making 10 grand a week to being truly broke and not being able to get a job was uh, about as life altering as it gets.
0: And you've mentioned this shift, it wasn't just a shift in occupation. It was as if you are beginning to shift because you go from this place of being arrogant, being immature. Would you agree with that? You were immature. And then now you're actually having to see yourself. You're having to see yourself as other people interpret you. But you're also having to ask yourself, well, is this valid? Is this true? Is this critique that I got accurate? And when you're asking yourself mm-hmm. these questions, what were the answers that were coming up as you're actually facing this reality? Well,
1: I want to preface this by saying this takes years of self-analysis. And I don't just mean therapy. It's not about that, but just having situations to reflect upon in your life. Because if a 20-year-old could immediately come up with this hypothesis about why they do things, then, you know, everybody would be the Buddha. You know, so through those next couple of years of struggling and learning the value of a dollar, I think that over time, the struggle was what made me realize how much I had lost, like how easy I had it on the soap opera. Just literally had to learn my lines every day, take work with an acting coach, not go out at night as much, and just really be disciplined. And that's what I realized I didn't have is disciplined. So I'm a big believer that I've learned from that is you choose your humility or life chooses it for you. So during that time, I learned a lot about that I was lazy. I never thought of myself as a lazy person because people liked me. So therefore, I must not be lazy. But I was very lazy. I was undisciplined. And if I had been disciplined and not been lazy, I would have been on the show for years, I believe.
0: Well, and it's interesting because I feel like a lot of us, we want comfort over everything else. We want to feel comfortable. We want to feel good. And we want to feel like we have everything together. I would classify myself as a recovering perfectionist. I think now mm-hmm. I am going into the world of imperfection And I kind of like it, you know, rather than viewing everything qualitatively, I'm viewing things in a binary way of, did I do it or did I not do it? And if I keep doing it and getting it done, I will improve. But it's always very easy to view it from this qualitative thing of, well, I could have done this better, could have done this better. And that ultimately, for me, would always end up in paralysis. I got there, I think, because I failed gloriously a few times and probably way more than a few. But, you know, you fail... And then you're like, well, I don't want to fail again. I don't want to fail again. And then it's very easy just to think through like, well, am I doing this to grow and be better? Or am I doing this to get to a point where I'm just comfortable and happy? Mm. And you're in this situation, you're resting on your laurels, as you said, and you're kind of just really just, you're working hard, but then you got to a place and you're like, okay, I can coast. And I think that's a temptation for a lot of us. We want to coast. We want to be comfortable. But what would you say to those who are really thinking through is comfortability the goal or is growth the goal?
1: I think for me, looking back, I would, what I would say in that same scenario is I think growth is good. And I think that's what the, that, that's what the answer is, right, for the go getter. But growth is also this ambiguous idea of something better than it is. So I think you have to have a very small micro goal. You've got to have a specific goal because without the specificity, you get unspecific results. As an example, here's the question. If I had to go back in time, I like doing this exercise. If I could go back in time right now and have coffee with my 20-year-old self, what would I say? I think that always gives you an idea. Also, go and just visit your future self if you can. But if I went back in time right now and I sat in, sat in front of 20-year-old Michael, I would say, hey, listen, I want you to decide what you really want and how bad do you want this? Because if you're saying you want to be an actor and you really want to do this, then the work itself is the reward and you're avoiding the work. You want the result of people liking you called fame you want attention. You want to feel special. That's got nothing to do with the profession of being an actor. So if you think that you're going to become a successful actor by hanging out and not doing the work, you're delusional, which is why most people move to LA and leave a year later. And now that, you know, ironically in in today's world, how it translates is people don't actually have to go be actors. They can just take a picture of their ham sandwich and, you know, them and their face and everyone gives them attention. And it releases that dopamine of attention and self-love that we all need. Another conversation. But but that's ultimately what happened to me as a kid. I think I felt what a lot of kids are going through on social media right now. I decided it in a different way.
0: Well, and as you describe this meeting with yourself 20 plus years younger, you're coming to this meeting from the perspective of you are a self-aware adult, an adult who's growing in self-awareness. When you were first in this role, you weren't self-aware.
1: No, you're in survival mode.
0: Right. Right. But now as you go back mm-hmm. and you're looking at where you were when you were in your 20s, You're able to look at it and say, okay, as a self-aware person, I'm looking at this and saying, okay, now I know why I was doing this. I was in survival mode. I was trying to have fame. I wasn't finding my reward in the work. And I think that's an interesting idea, finding your reward in the work. What do you mean by that? So finding the reward in the
1: work is the work itself is the gift. Because think about this. People say, oh, when you love what you do, it's not work. And that's essentially the same thing. So when you're working on something and the money is great, you're working on something and the money is not great, but your passion level is the same and your attention to detail and jumping out of bed to do it is the same, then you're winning in the game of life. That's why they say there's so many CEOs out there who hate their lives, but they're making 600 grand a year and have no issues. Yeah, but they're not happy.
0: Yeah. And they feel trapped by what they do. Right.
1: So exactly. So to me, the, the, the work is the reward. It has to boil down to I'm loving what I'm doing. Right. But if you're not, and I clearly wasn't. So this leads to the next thing. I feel like this is one of the reasons, like I have a two and a half year old now. I constantly think about the idea of college and the idea of education and all these things systematically before people even know who they are and what they want to do. They're deciding the the fate of their lives at 18. So, you know, I'd say 90% of my friends who have a degree don't use it. Right. So no one looks at that stat though. They look at it like, well, you got to go to college if you want to do something. So I get it for a tool or a service or something you need a certain, you know, educational fundamental to do. Understood, like a doctor. But outside of that, the idea of finding yourself through college, I always say college I went to college for six months. It taught me one thing. It taught me to think inside of a box. That's it. So I when I left, I was like, Well, if you know, I steal this from Michael J. Fox, the great Michael J. Fox. He said, Well, if two plus two is four every time, what good is it? Interesting. Right? Like I understand it from the point of view of mathematics and the language of the universe. However, when it comes to being creative or thinking outside of the box, it's really boring. Right. So for me, going back to the soap, what I would like, I would tell my daughter now or myself when I was 20 is explore, explore, make a goal with yourself from 18 to 22. You're going to try every job you can. You're going to do this. You're going to live in a different city. And then at 22, decide, do I want to have a, a real job as this or I want to go be an artist or i not an artist being even, maybe even more of a real job is so hard, but you know, on so many levels. But I just think that that's kind of gets, that's what, what kind of got missed. So when I think about those days as on the soap opera, I look at that for me as college. I got to learn about a real business, requiring services that go both ways, right? Not just one way. And attention, learning who I was through this job, losing it, humility, school of hard knocks. And would New York break me? And it didn't. And I stayed And two years later. I got a job offer back at the same hotel that I worked at before I got the show. And guess what? After that, I never took it for granted the rest of my life.
0: Now, see, that's incredible because like as you're describing basically your school of hard knocks, and you're talking about how you really started to learn who you were, what you should appreciate, really the value of the work that you were doing. I think that's interesting because I feel like a lot of people who go into college, they don't know who they are. And now they have to make these pivotal life decisions and determine what they're going to do the rest of their lives. And judging by your career, That's not how it shook out for you. You've done multiple things. You've done very different things. And each thing has been a shift. And so as you're talking about it, you had to accept in that moment that you lost the job, that it was on you, but then you get this job at the restaurant that you had left. Tell me more about that because you went from being kind of on cloud nine as Mm -hmm. a soap opera star to now you're working in a restaurant and that's a very big pivot.
1: So, yeah. So, I mean, the, the short of it was, was that, and this is, I wanted to say this just because for your listeners, because to put it in perspective, so when I first moved to New York, I was broke. And I mean, broke, broke, like actually broke. Like all you had in the fridge was baking soda broke. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't have money for my parents. Right. So, um, you know, the first thing I did was I got a job at the Tribeca Grand Hotel. It was nice. a boutique hotel in New York. It opened in 2000. At that point, it was the hottest bar in the world, not just in New York City. And I got to be a bar back there. And it changed my understanding of everything. Hospitality, the people I work with, all the guys that were older than their 30s who were Shakespearean actors who were bartending and they were incredible bartenders. And my whole life lit up. And then I booked the soap and they helped me. A lot of those guys helped me, like audition. And they're all Purchase, SUNY Purchase guys and Juilliard Tisch guys. So I was getting some great education from those dudes. But when I booked the soap, I stayed close to those guys, but I would go by the hotel every day after the studio because that felt like, home. Huh. When I got fired from the soap, I didn't get my job back at the hotel because one of the managers there just didn't like me. And I'm sure he didn't like me for his own reasons. And maybe I was a little punk. I don't know, but I, I know that I really missed that job. And from that point on the next two years, I pivoted from like, I was working five jobs in, you know, at one time. I was working six days a week and I was barely getting by. And that's it,
0: such a genuine New York experience um, yeah. too.
1: And I remember you might be missing a place on um, on West 4th street, uh, West 4th street and seventh called garage. It's a jazz bar restaurant in the Chelsea area just west of West fourth. And I couldn't even get a regular waiter job there. Like they would just go, okay, you can come into the daytime with a daytime waiter. We'll pay you 20 bucks, you know, cash and give you a meal and you might get one table at dinner service. So I'm like, okay, I'm making like 25 bucks a day. You know, taking the L train back to Williamsburg before it was popular.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: But the point is I was, I was so broken, so miserable though. when that I walked back to the Tribeca Grand and the director there said, Michael, didn't you still work here? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. You know, I just, in my mind, I'd written it off already. But it had been two years since, a year and a half since the soap, two years. And he said, do you want to come back to work? And I was like, he was a creative director. And I was like, yeah, trying to play cool. Like I didn't care. I got my job back, not my job back, but a new title there. Started working, doing great stuff behind the bar there again. And I'd never been more paranoid of how much value I brought. That was the difference. So I saw the fundamental shift in my life from the two years earlier. where I was like, now I would leave work and go, but I make sure all my, all my I's were dotted. All my T's were crossed. Did I help somebody else out? Did I check with people to make sure I'm good to go? I did not want to lose that job. But I also became hyper aware of what value do I bring versus just the time that I'm here.
0: Well, and tell me more about that. How do you become hyper aware of your value that you bring to a certain occupation? Oh, great question.
1: When I, I I talk about that all the time when I speak now, and I think it starts with the need to be valuable. And what do you mean by that, The need to be valuable? Well, everyone says ambition means different things, right? Ambition means, oh, I have to go out and be successful and make money. No, ambition also means I have the need to make an impact. So you cannot make, if, you, if you're going to have value, how do you quantify value?
0: Well, right? I, I think it's interesting because one of the main points of this podcast is learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life and learning how we impact others. And so I don't want it to be lost on our listeners that you went from kind of focusing on you to now you're actually thinking about value and you're like, how do I impact others? Mm-hmm. It, wasn't about, it wasn't all about you anymore. No, yeah, and I think that's the
1: main focus. If you focus, that's the work is in the reward because if you focus on the people that are around you and how do you make them great, you rise yourself up with them in the process. And I know that sounds very Tony Robbins, Right. It, it's not that it's, but it's the truth. Like if, if you're really focused on yourself, narcissistically and how you succeed, you, that doesn't mean you're not going to make a ton of money. You probably will. But so why? There's a hole in the earth with everyone's name on it. So, you know, wow. and, it, and you can't take it all with you. So it, can you make an impact? And I think when you do that, but here's the thing before I even get off on that, I, I feel like at times you have to, you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror and go, I'm not who I thought I was. Hmm. Right. And, and that sounds very like, well, what do you mean? Are you lying to yourself? Yeah. I think we're all lying to ourselves a little bit. And I think the more authentic we can be with ourselves, we can be more authentic with others. So when I had to look myself in the hard mirror of life, it was, you say you're this guy, you're the spiritual dude, you want to be an actor, you care about other people, you're doing all these things, but you're not doing the work and you're showing up like a half-ass. How do those go together? So I had to look myself in the mirror and go, you don't have a work ethic and you think you do. And you think that you're, you deserve to have these things. When you don't, you have to earn them. Right? Yeah,
0: you had to face yourself before you could really face other mm-hmm. people.
1: Absolutely. And then once you do that, facing other people is easy. It's just so
0: easy. Well, and I think a lot of us, we fear looking at ourselves. We fear what is the answer going to be when it's revealed? We fear critique because does that mean I'm a terrible person? Does that mean I'm not enough? Does that mean I don't matter? And the truth is, no, it doesn't mean that. But when we see ourselves and we accept reality and we're like, yeah, I, I, I do phone it in in this area of my life and, and I'm not trying to grow in this area. And I have, I have a struggle here that I'm probably going to struggle with for a little while. Until we really own where we are, we can't change. Sure. And so you're owning your situation, you're owning being fired and you're saying, okay, now I'm going to move forward.
1: Well, yeah. And I think, look, I mean, for what it's worth, it took me a few years to do that.
0: Right. Right. It's not something that like we can do overnight, but I think for me, it just took me a while to get to a point where I'm like, I want to change. Well, here's the thing. I think we talked to me, you and I've talked about this in the past is
1: decision-making and pivoting and diversity. So here's the thing. One of the best lessons I got out of that life lessons versus self-awareness and self-growth was it taught me how to adapt. And I've learned now that As I've gotten older and speaking to people and opening businesses and advising other people on their businesses, which is way more pressure than doing your own. People always think it's the opposite, but when you tell somebody else how to spend their money or they might lose their home, if you have any integrity, that's a lot of pressure, especially when they're paying you. So the one thing that I would say is making decisions seems to be one of the things in our society that people really struggle with. They really struggle with it. So when you look at certain leaders in the world, and I'll leave them nameless for now because I don't want to bring up politics on your show. Because I think it, I think it, it goes on any side of politics. It's not about one particular group or uh, ideology is that half the crowd just follows the person who says, this is the way it is. Right. And where does that come from? Their ability to decide and follow through and people follow and They call them leaders, you know, or they can, or they call them world leaders. Right. But I found out that a lot of people, when you start, you know, opening businesses and running management companies and things like that, you start realizing that a lot of people are terrified to make a decision. And the reason why is because you're terrified of being wrong and getting fired. And what it really boils down to is for myself, just making decisions is very easy for me at this point in my life. And it only comes from the supreme confidence I have in my ability to adapt if I'm wrong, not because I'm right.
0: Well, and there's also an objective record in your life of you've made a bunch of decisions. So, you know, even if it goes sideways, you're going to adapt, you're going to figure it out and you're going to keep going. Yeah. And I think that's really all it boils down to is letting go of the idea that you have to be right. Well, you know, we mentioned you at 20 and like this college age persona where you're trying to figure out what are you going to be doing for the rest of your life and i'm sure you thought you were going to be in acting for a very long time before that shift happened and it's interesting because i think part of the reason of struggling with decisions is we put this undue pressure on ourselves of we have to have the right decision it has to be perfect and it's going to impact the rest of our lives we can't just look at it as all right i'm going to make a decision and if it's a bad one I'll probably figure that out pretty quickly and be able to adjust. But you're saying it's not about right or wrong. It's about adapting. Mm-hmm. And so when we're adapting to a new shift or a new situation, what advice would you give us as we're kind of dealing with the growing pains of adapting?
1: The advice that I would give is to be excited about the journey of adaption. Hmm. There's nothing not exciting about it. When you don't know what's going to happen next, life's very exciting. When I think about adaption, I think about Mr. Toad's wild ride, right? At Disney World. Like you think you're going to hit a wall and then you don't and you move out and you do this and you do that. One thing is not as boring and it sure ain't sad. So when you're adapting to something, you're in the moment, you're figuring out what's happening and you're growing. Like you grow through adaption, that's evolution. So when you're in those decisions and those moments and you're wrong and you have to adjust again, your whole process of thinking is different and you learn how to think through things. So be excited about the adventure of adaption.
0: I like that because being excited about the journey rather than worried about the destination, like, well, well I got to get here. And if I don't get here, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. Well, you're going to be paralyzed. You're not going to be able to function. But if you look at it as a journey where, yeah, I don't know what's around the corner, but once I get there, I'm going to be able to figure it out.
1: So how about this one? Here's a good one. Sometimes I've had some entrepreneurs ask me my advice on adaption which I always find very flattering when people ask me for advice on anything. So I don't take that for granted. I always tell them, okay, I'm gonna give you a budget. It's gonna be a tight budget. I need you to be in charge of building a new railroad, bullet train system from point A to point B in New York to LA, but it cannot deviate, it has to be a perfect straight line. And they say, well, I can't do that. Okay, well, how would you do it? Well, I'd have to adapt to the terrain based on the budget. Okay, then do that. Have you ever done a railroad before? Have you ever done a major project? No? Well, then figure it out. But you know what the parameters of the project are. Well, what about the people involved? The contractors? Figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Then all of a sudden they're looking from point A to point B and they realize it's impossible to make it a straight line. But I'm going to set the expectation that it needs to be. That's life. Yeah. But it won't be. But you're going to get me there. So when people look at the adaption process like that, I always say, remember, point A to point B, you adapted the terrain. You don't have to make the perfect decision. And then they're like, oh, but it will get done. And it's going to work. The outcomes will be there. Right. And it's going to be functional. But the whole time you're doing it, you're going, it's got to be a straight line. It's got to be a straight line. You're never going to get it done. You're going to go over budget and you're going to go, oh, I couldn't finish it. Versus making a case of why you had to adapt and not waiting for permission. That's that's a whole other topic, right? So, you know, when you look at all the best entrepreneurs, I always like to use two jobs because it's easy to say someone's successful once they're successful. Right. right. Versus losing their company and all this stuff. His well, He backstory. got fired, got fired, lost his company, multiple projects and products that he made didn't work in the way that he wanted them to. But his whole career was adaption. Everything was adaption all the time, making the best, most informed decision that you can and then adapt. That's it. That, that's like my rule now with everything I do. I'm like, I'm not going to get lost in the weight of, is this the right decision?
0: No, if it's not, then I'll stop and do something else. Well, and it becomes an identity issue too, because we can have our identity in our past failures or we could have our identity in our future successes that we have no idea will ever happen. Sure. But it's that idea of saying, okay, well, who do I know myself to be? And also, what am I trying to accomplish? And what am I trying to accomplish? And what's the next right thing to do? And you make a decision. What's the next step to move forward? You yeah, know? you make a decision. It's like, we want to be a hundred yards down the field, but you know, we got to start at the five yard line sometimes you know, to use a a football Mm -hmm. analogy, like you might have really terrible field position that doesn't lessen the responsibility to move forward. You know, here's the thing. And I wanted to say this because it's kind of coming up in the moment. This is the one
1: that's been kind of, as I've looked at the mistakes I've made in my life, and I I don't want to call them mistakes when I've looked at the things that have happened that were unfavorable to my expectations. No, that's good. That's Uh, good. When I call mistakes, I also call, I also call them positive inconveniences. When I think about all the things that have not worked out the way I wanted it to where I'm at now in my life. I'm constantly in this position of wondering, where would I be if I hadn't made these mistakes or these things hadn't worked out? But I guess at this point in my life, 20 years after that happened, the ability to think, that's the thing. When I look at what I learned in all those years in New York and moving to Los Angeles, and we haven't even gotten into the movie stuff and the movie business and all those things, that's the one gift that's like, this, the adversity teaches you to think. People think because they're intelligent that they're smart. That's something I've learned in living in New York and LA and Miami and working in different industries is that there's so many people I know that I've met that are way more intelligent than I am. But I don't know if they're smarter. And there's guys out there that are way smarter than me. So, you know, it's the thing of being practical and applying your knowledge. And I find as I've gotten older, the ability to think through things, like we say, even something as emotional intelligence, right? Like being right. empathetic. Okay. How, how do you teach somebody how to be empathetic versus tell them to be empathetic? And it doesn't matter whether it's something as esoteric as that. Or it's how to wipe the table. So I feel like we have a saying at Invictus that everything gets lost in the how because everybody knows the what. There's not one person on this planet that doesn't know the what. How do I do it? Well, they stop because that requires thinking and decision making and people stop. And when you consult, as long as I have, you know, you've, I have some amazing clients that are highly successful in other industries that when they go into something else, they can't really adapt or pivot and they get stuck and they can't make a decision. So. I know this seems rudimentary, but the ability to think, it's the number one thing. People ask me, what do you want to teach your daughter? What do, you, what do you want to leave with your daughter? I say, the ability to think through things. That's it. That's my job as a parent, is to her to think through a scenario before it happens.
0: Well, and you're also taking this idea of a lot of us are kind of, we're lost in the idea of something. We love the idea of something, but not the reality of it. We're
1: all, we all, we're all victims of our own self-indulgence in that way. Sure.
0: And you say, you know, everything gets lost in the how. So that's the application. That's the, what does this look like in real time? And for a lot of us, we love the perfect life scenario that we've painted in our head.
1: The Instagram life.
0: Yeah. We want that. We want that. We want the filters. We want, everything to be perfect but you know what life is not perfect life's messy life's difficult how do you take a hard look at the how because everyone wants the perfection everyone wants the idea but it's in the application that i think we really find what we're made of
1: sure so this is the how this is the thinking part yeah right so how do you adapt that so for me it's very simple it's break things down into simple steps a good example would be this so you know, me and my business partner were thinking when you're, what's the best thing we could give as a tool when we're doing bar and restaurant expo in Vegas? Like, what could we give the people who signed up for our seminars? You know, this year was awesome. I had a thousand people sign up for my sessions and I felt so flattered that that many people were spending that much time with me. to hear me blabber on, right? But I thought, what tool could we give them? What thing could we give them? Whether it's a hat or a notebook or all the stuff you get at conferences. And I thought, you know, well, I could give them as a notepad with an action plan on it. Some people call it a decision tree, but. I realize I sit down with people who are like just badasses in business and way smarter than me. Right. But I sit down and do these rudimentary fundamental things were like, oh, but how, what's the next step? Let's create an action plan. It's very simple. What is the task? Who is doing it? When is it done by? And who's accountable for it? Uh, it's so simple. That's all it is. It's, it, it's an action, an expectation, and who's responsible and a deliverable. And you do 20 of them and a week you're like, well, wow, we got so much done in our project. That's the how. That's the thinking part is how do I break everything down in two steps, even down to being empathetic? Something as simple as walking through a venue and a venue like a bus- a restaurant and seeing people eat. Like, here, I'll give you, I, I, I uh, digress. How do you teach a server at a restaurant how to become aware of their guests? I mean, pretty difficult until you say, here's a game for you. It's called beat the guest. And they say, what do you mean? No, not beat them up, <laughs> right. right? But sit and, sit in their perspective as you're serving their table and think, what are they going to think of next that they might need that automatically puts you in their perspective of where they're at their dining experience? So if they think of it before you do it, you lose. And now you have an awareness that wasn't there before through an exercise.
0: And I can also see your idea of the work as the reward playing out here too. You're saying, okay, right. let's plan this out. Let's, let's look at this as the goal and not success or great reviews, but let's actually have a good, solid product that we can give to make the world a better place.
1: Well, here's the thing. First of all, I think some people, I think half the world would accuse you of saying you're an idealist and maybe that's even cheesy. The other half would say that's how it's meant to be. Here's the part. And I would call myself out before other entrepreneurs or restaurateurs. Do you really care about the guest experience or do you care about your reviews? Mm. That's the difference. Do you really care about the impact you're making when when they're here? And w- how they feel and what you're providing them on, a, on an impact level of hospitality and service? Or is it that you care about what they say about your restaurant? Only you can know. Because if you really want to make an impact, the results are there. That's the work.
0: Well, and the who are you doing it for question matters. Right. If we are focused on impact, yeah, you might get some messy reviews at first, but then things will improve because you're doing this with your customer in view. You're doing this. For them, kind of in their place and saying, okay, we, we need to do this, not because of my reputation. No, we need to do this so that people have a good experience.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and that's another thing too. I mean, look, I can, I want to be as honest as I can because I, 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 I hate the idea of podcasts being like Instagram profiles where I present right, right, my right. best version of myself to you and no one gets anything out of that. So I'll give you an example. I moved to Daytona eight months ago from Los Angeles to oversee this property that we own because I wanted to reach its potential. But the truth is, why in God's name would I want to open? Uh, Brooklyn, New York, San Francisco, LA style, but not really LA, but East Coast, Northeast venue in Daytona beach. It doesn't make any sense because not only is Florida outdated in the food and beverage world, it's also the 1980s in Daytona with the way the build outs are and the restaurants are.
0: No, it hasn't changed much.
1: No. And I can tell you right now that there's a lot of business opportunity, which I'll I'll spare the, the podcast. I'll spare your wonderful podcast for that. But there's a lot of good business reasons to do it. However, talent wise, it's very difficult and even though I have an amazing company around me, trust me, I feel like the Lone Ranger. And I feel like what I'm doing here is trying to make an impact on the social level of giving people the right training, showing them that we care about our employees, you know, implementing the right standards. And it is taking more out of me than a lot of things ever have, but I'm seeing the impact and the restaurant becomes like a vehicle for social change. And it's weird to see it. The, the connection that the employees have here um, with how they feel because they feel like they're structured and they feel cared for and they have a voice. And I'm, and I can tell you right now as owners and management, we have to start with, what do we need to work on? Are we giving you the proper tools to be great at what you do, but then holding you accountable at the same time and that being a two-way street.
0: So I don't want to lose this momentum here, but you said something that really captured me, like this idea that the restaurant becomes a vehicle for social change. That's definitely focusing on the impact. Yes. And I. I do want to touch on the fact that as we're talking about shifts and embracing reality as you know, the defecation hits the ventilation in our lives and things just go south, I'm looking at your life here and I'm looking at some of the highlights and lowlights in a sense. And yeah, you were an actor. Then you were working in a restaurant. You've been a filmmaker. You've been on the show Bar Rescue. You've done a lot of different things. And a lot of us, we like to be one trick ponies. But I'm looking at this and I'm like, you've done multiple things. How did you discover that you could do that? Necessity is the mother of invention. Right, right, right. You know, I mean, it really, it's. It, and it's I, that adapting piece, right? Well, like, yeah, and
1: I, people always ask me, they're like, well, you know, do you ever, I think there are people, friends of mine who have said, hey, I really want to be more entrepreneurial, but I'm afraid of being broke. And I said, oh, I'm afraid of being bored.
0: Yeah. That's my deep fear. And so your motivation is way different. So sure. you're not, it's not survival as much as thriving. Yeah, I You also, want to thrive regardless yeah. of whether you have money or not.
1: Right. And I think that's part of it too, is you have to be willing to, when you say I've done all these things, it comes with a price. It comes without the price of certainty. So when I'm doing documentaries in Los Angeles, I'm trying to get projects funded. I'm doing all this work. that other people are getting paid to do. People want to be entrepreneurs, but they don't want to do the work it takes to be one without getting the paycheck first. That makes you an employee, not an, an entrepreneur. So I learned a lot about hustling in LA where I had to, I was in the daytime, I'm, you know, there was a project, a documentary I was working on that involved a lot of the 84 Olympic boxing team. And I'm out having lunch with Vander Holyfield and Henry Tillman to drop some amazing names. Those are great men. And got really close with them, talked about their teams in the 80s and going to the Olympic trials. And guess what? I'm, I'm paying for dinners, but I'm bartending at night, you know, and I'm broke, but I'm an entrepreneur and I'm making movies and I'm doing all these things. Like, and I'm, you know, I'm in LA, so I'm not telling anyone, anyone I'm bartending. That's not what you do, you know, with producers. So,
0: no, I'm an actor. Yeah. I'm
1: an actor. No, and at yeah. the time, and that time, I was full on producing. Oh, so okay. I wasn't telling anyone what I was doing, you know? But that's what I mean. But people aren't always willing to do that. They're not willing to take that risk. They want that certainty of that paycheck.
0: And I think that's it. For me, my life changed when I took a massive risk, sold everything and moved to New York to fight human trafficking, even though I really didn't know what that meant. And, and Restaur- all a- the- I'm sorry, restaurant sounds breaking you up there. Sorry. <laughs> well, Continue. and I think it's so interesting because what we want might be on the other side of a risk. And we want to do anything that provides a certainty. But like you're saying, the price is certainty. Like you have to, in a sense, give up certainty and go into it knowing that, yes, I may not know what's going to happen, but this is my goal. I don't want to be bored. I'm going to, I'm right. going to shoot for this and we're going to see what happens. And I might have to adapt into something else.
1: But this is, what you're, this is what's such an interesting topic, because you're also saying that, that certainty also reflects on other qualities. It also reflects on being lazy. Because you want Mm. you want the guaranteed deal. You want to know that if you do the work, you
0: want the sure thing.
1: If you want you do all this work, you want the entitlement of it's going to be successful. And that's not what you were taught as a kid. Do the hard work, and you hope it works out the way you want. But you let the chips fall where they may. And I think that ties into another thing. If like, don't bring it all the way back around to the beginning of this beautiful podcast. Is, is what, not just certainty, but you want to make sure that you are comfortable. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that you are comfortable, and. And this being an entrepreneur and trying different things and risk, you know, having your gift or your reward be on the other side of risk is not comfortable. People want an exciting life. Here's here's my favorite thing. One of my favorite quotes is people want change, but they
0: don't want to change. And you started where a lot of people want to end up. Yeah. At 20 years old, you had what a lot of people want. For their whole life. They want to be famous. They want to be known. They want to fill that insecurity with fame. And it doesn't answer the questions that you really are asking. It's not going to fulfill you like you think it would.
1: I want to maybe we can, you know, try to round this up with a good analogy. Let's take someone like a Jim Carrey, a comedic icon, a movie star, great stand-up comedian, artist, author, all those great things. He's got so many things on YouTube that is saying the exact same thing. As a guy who grew up in Fort Lauderdale, who is well known for five minutes, definitely not famous, right? Well known for five minutes, has some notoriety, whatever you want to call it. And yet here I am saying the exact same thing he's saying that becoming rich and famous, which I was not, right? I had a taste of it. He, right. it's his life saying that is not the answer. No. That will not fulfill you. Right. It will not, if it give you all the money and all the cars and all the fame, it's not going to do anything. So there's two ends of the spectrum, right? A guy who got him soap proper and got fired and a guy who, Who's been up for awards and is a movie icon saying the exact same thing? So there's a message there. It's not just based on scale.
0: No. And I love how throughout this conversation, you've talked about how the focus should really be on the struggle over time rather than resting on your laurels. It's not about comfortability, it's about growth. And to figure out how we're growing, you're thinking about micro goals, you're thinking about specific and measurable goals. And as you're doing that, the work becomes the reward. You know, it's, not about fame as much as self-awareness. And impact. Yeah, and impact. The work itself is the gift. I love how you said that. And even with making decisions as you're doing the work, it's not about right or wrong as much as it is about adapting. And yes, disruptions come. There are going to be things that shake us up, but that ultimately can lead us to finding out how good at this are we? And is this what I'm supposed to do? Or is this what I want to do? And I think this idea of, is this what I want to do might even be better? Because I love how you talked about your motivation, not being fame or money, but you just didn't want to be bored. That was your drive. And I think when that is our drive, we're going to see what we're made of. And as you pivoted into the restaurant industry, you're seeing this restaurant not as just a way to make your name great, but as a way to change the community, yes. as a way to bring value, as a way to ultimately see people's lives change for the better just by interacting with your food, your product. And but so, oh. Bring the,
1: bringing this back, just maybe if you want to end things on this note, the one thing I would say is the irony of all of this is 20, 20, 25 years ago when I started at the Tribeca Grand and I got my big break on TV. In my life now, I look back at it and think, I got my break at the Tribeca Grant.
0: There it is. There it is. And what you thought was your break wasn't. Correct. Because I,
1: I felt a sense of camaraderie. New York kicked my butt in the best way possible. Right. And I never got arrogant at the hotel. I got arrogant when I got on TV.
0: So if you were to give us three things for us to think about as we end our time here, what would you tell our listeners who are really thinking through, how do I make the right decision or... How do I adapt to this shift that's happened in my life?
1: I got to think about this one. Three things. Mm -hmm. First thing would be to go back in time and ask yourself 10 years ago how you would handle it.
0: Mm -hmm. So you Mm -hmm. can
1: instantly feel your own growth.
0: Oh, that's really good. You can see that objective record.
1: Right. That's important to give yourself confidence before you adapt. And then go have lunch with your future self and talk about the scenario and sit. And that future self has to be all the things that you imagine that you want sit and have a conversation and ask your future self, what should I do here in my adaption? And the third thing would be to look in the mirror and remember no matter what happens, you're going to be with you the rest of your life, regardless of who's in your life at that moment and to be true to yourself. And when you do that, you can be great for other people.
0: So connecting with your past self, your future self, and then looking yourself in the mirror and saying, all right, I'm going to be with me from here on out. So how can I live with that? How can I thrive? How can I enjoy me? You'll tell a
1: friend who's going through a hard time that you love them. You don't tell yourself that.
0: No. And I feel like the things we say to ourselves, if we said them to our friends, we wouldn't have any friends. Oh, a hundred
1: percent. So at this point in my life, I'm mature enough to know that I have to look in the mirror when things are rough and say, Hey, I love
0: you. Just keep punching. And that is the perfect note to end on. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: This is my favorite podcast I've ever done. And just make sure you don't tell Brian Duffy that. Famous (laughs) chef, Brian Duffy. Thank you. Thanks.
0: If you are interested in more conversations like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. If you want bonus episodes, as well as a plethora of other resources, become a paid member at lmpg.org for $10 a month. You will get access to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, where we dive deeper. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. We want to hear from you. So you can email us at info at mercycast.com. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.